tshuva, said Rav Cook, comes from the longing of the entire universe to become better and more pure, stronger and more elevated. The repentance of an individual, and certainly of the community, draws its strength from this life force, which flows unceasingly. Well, I'll never stop longing for that source and trying to move everything I can around me a little bit closer to it. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 6, Episode 3, an interview with Rav Aaron Ariel Lavi. So, before we get started on the main event, I just got a note that a friend said a most stunning thing to me the other day. He said, just being born into this world is a trauma that we all have to work through. He actually said it in the context of the type of work that I'm trying to do with people, which remember, if you want to do a little bit of inner work, access the wisdom of the Torah together with the tools of modern coaching and counseling, be in touch with me, RobMikeFoyer at gmail.com. Happy to talk about the spiritual counseling. But for now... I pointed out to him something which has really been sitting with me for a long time, that the Alter Rebbe, the father of Chabad Hasidut, said that really we all have to have Rahmanas Ananeshama Tahora for being thrust into this confusing physical world. What does that mean? Well, Rahmanut really is usually translated as mercy. I like the English word compassion. But ultimately, it has its root in the word Rechem, meaning womb in Hebrew. He's saying we all have to hold space for that pure side of us, that godly piece of the infinite, which is trying to make its way in this world. And not only do we have to have compassion on ourselves, we have to have compassion on existence, says Rav Cook, because we're all trying to get back to that source. And this compassion really is the basis for the acceptance of process, that we're all struggling to become and overcome, which has to precede any tshuva, whether you think of that as repentance or as return. We're all trying to get at an authentic way of being who we are. It's true of each of us, it's true of the universe, and it's true of the Jewish story. We're in a process here, people. And this episode is going to introduce a new element to season six, which is why I'm taking a minute to give it a bit of a sort of backstory, along with the fact that I couldn't resist adding my own Rosh Hashanah thought into the mix. It aims to connect the new year, which is shortly upon us, to my goal of laying out a vision of the future, of interviewing people here in Israel and abroad who have a sense of what the Jewish story might become. And I want to use this chance as a reminder to tell you, reach out. Give me the names of the people with a vision out there. And by the way, as long as I'm speaking directly to you, take this opportunity to support Season 6. Go to jewishstory.co in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that button there to give a little bit per podcast support. Or reach out to me directly, robmikefoyer at gmail.com or robmikefoyer on Facebook. Happy to share with you ways that you can support, including dedicating one of the coming shows to someone you love, be they here with us or having moved on. So for right now... Sit down, relax, tune in for the first element of vision of the coming Jewish story. I'm here with Rav Aaron Ariel Levy. He's a rabbi, he's a columnist, he's an expert in what I might call Jewish economics. He's founder of Hakel, the Jewish Intentional Communities Incubator out of Chazon, and he lives in Shuva at the Gaza border. Rav Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Mike. Good to see you and hear you. Good to you. see you too. Last time we saw each other, we were on another continent. Kind of hard yeah. to believe, isn't it? So we're well, back uh, home, though in different cities. Well, it depends if you count uh, the land of Israel as part of Africa or part of Asia or part of Europe. It oh, depends. don't get me started on my geological side of things. We are technically on the landmass of Asia, but there is a valley rift to our east that separates us from the continental plate. Right. However, there's another one to our west which separates us from the African continental plate which means, of course, being Jews as we are, we're just kind of on our own. But exactly. I don't want to, that's as far as I'm going to go with that. Before we dive into the sort of meat of our discussion today, which is really going to revolve around Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, in a very unique way that I think that you have to approach it, I just actually want to ask a personal question. I mentioned in the introduction that you live in Shuva, in the sort of Gaza belt. And for many people listening um, that seems like the equivalent of living on the edge of a firing range. How exactly did you get down there? Were you, you were not born in, in Shuvah, I'm correct. Yes, where were you born? 
No, I was born in Kriyativon, which is in the northern part of Israel. And then I moved to Jerusalem to do my BA in economics back then, like 15 years ago. Met my wife, got married. And then, you know, housing prices back then were high, but now I realize they were pretty low compared to what we have today. <laughs> it's all relative, right? It's all, it's all relative. It's all like doubled since then. But so we try to find a place where we can actually uh, create a community, community of Balet Shuva mostly, people who are like new, newly observant, but also in a place that makes sense for the country. So we mm. went to the government, we asked them, we have a group of young people, where do you need us? They told us there's this place called Shuva on the Gaza border. It's edging out. Nobody want to go there. Maybe you can give it a shot. We came here. It was a love at first sight. And now we have about 45 families and a wedding list and a new kindergarten and a new school. It's life where really, you know, as you said, the people were aging out. One, at least from a distance, can imagine that it feels like you're moving into a uh, very difficult neighborhood. And yet you've brought incredible life there, if I understand correctly. For us as Jews, as you said, we're on our own. So difficulties actually yield innovation and, and thinking out of, the, out of the box and the new, new creations. So it, it seems like this type of community, like of Balet Shuva, a community that connects uh, Torah with life and, and stuff like that, there was and there still is, is a need for that. And there's demand. Was moving there part of your work with Hakel or did moving there come first and then this idea of, uh, of a Jewish intentional communities incubator did that come after? I'm also curious, what exactly is a Jewish intentional communities incubator? What does that mean? Well, yeah, actually it was the, the latter. So uh, Hakel was inspired by Shuva and by many other communities in Israel called Kehilot Misimatiot, Garinim, Urban Kibbutzim, intentional communities, meaning intentional communities, communities with a purpose. And then when I was living in New York, the previous Shemitah year, actually, seven years ago, the UJ Federation of New York asked me if I can take this model and run a pilot program and see if it can somehow attract young people back to Jewish life because most young Jews are actually moving away from synagogues, JCCs, federations. But it doesn't mean that they're moving away from Judaism. They're moving away from the sociological structures. You speak about America now. It, 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 it cuts across the board. It's in South Africa and Australia and Europe, everywhere. Interesting. Literally everywhere. So they're moving away from the institutions, but not something Jewish per se. Exactly. And many of them are trying to create their own communities, which you may know by the name of independent minyanim, all kinds of eco-villages or whatever. But most of them will fail. Actually, only two out of ten will succeed. The other eight will fail. Why? Can you tell us the one number one reason? Because building communities is not trivial. You don't just put people in a room and they become a community. It's a Uh bit more complicated. There are certain patterns that repeat themselves, certain challenges, structures, vision, decision-making. It's not rocket science, but it is a profession. Uh And what we do in the incubator, we take those nascent groups and give them professional mentoring, networking with other communities, some seed funding, trips to Israel to learn from the Israeli communities. And all in all, we have been able to raise the chances of success from two out of 10 to seven out of 10. That's, that's a big a, shift. And, can, yeah, and you feel shift. you have communities out there that have been successful. Can you tell us one just short story about something you feel that uh, people can learn from? Yeah, so we have 130 communities in 30 different countries. Amazing. In so, 30, wait, you said 30 different countries? Yeah, oh, 130 wow. communities in 30 different countries. That's really around the world. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's all, all continents. It's, it's Australia, North America, Latin America, Europe. We have some exotic places like uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, South Korea. But most communities are like the regular places. <laughs> just one story. I uh, just met, met with them this morning. They're called uh, Super. That's S-O-U-P-E-R, like a soup in Melbourne, Australia. In, so they started as a small community of Russian speakers who live there. They started with a small soup kitchen that gave meals for Holocaust survivors. And then came COVID and it exploded because they were the only organization actually positioned to deliver food to people in isolation and quarantine and during lockdowns. Melbourne had, had the most, most severe lockdowns in, in the world, by the way. Yeah. And now they have a whole restaurant. It's, it's a social restaurant that serves kosher, traditional Russian food, but also uses the profit to support social activism. So that's one story, but there are many more like it. So uh, there's really a, a very powerful message in what you said is that, first of all, you know, commuting, community building is a science. It may not be rocket science, like you said, but it, it requires some intentionality and guidance. And that guidance is out there, which I hope people listening right now, if you've got a community going 
and you feel like it could use some guidance uh, at the end of the show, I'll give people an opportunity to hear how to be in touch with you. I'm sure that there's yeah, a process, yeah. um, but uh, almost on a, I don't want to say on a deeper level, but on a more calendar orientation, the place that you move to is called Shuva, which means return, right? Here right. we are, right? At the height of the month of Elul, this month of, of return. And, and, and from what I heard is it, you said it in Hebrew, but Bali Chuba, meaning it was built by people returning to um, a deeper relationship to Torah, people returning to a place in, in the land of Israel, which was at risk of, of aging out and God forbid, you know, being abandoned. But what's the message is that the real power of return comes when you're able to share it with others, right? That your right. own personal experience didn't just take your energy and sink it into a spot and let it grow, which is beautiful. It took your energy and sinking it into that spot and growing, it gave forth fruit that you're able to share. What a fantastic model. I'm going to use the fruit metaphor to, to shift gears. You ready? Um, because I yeah. know that um, you have a book about the, the Shemitah year, the seventh sabbatical year. What's the name of the book? Remind yeah, so me. the book is called Seven, because Shemitah oh. is the seventh year. Right. And, uh, seven, it's a Shemitah-inspired social economic ideas. Shemitah-inspired social economic ideas. So before I get into my question, just tell us a, a little bit about what you see to be the, the sort of social economic basis for the seventh sabbatical year. Well, small question, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a short question, a short answer. I'll, I'll try to make it short. So Shemitah, many people tend to think of Shemitah as a utopian year. Uh -huh. Like the year where everything falls into place and we live like in the Garden of Eden. You can read many commentators in the, from the Middle Ages all the way to Av Cook, late 1900s, early 20th century, uh, about Shemitah being this fantastic year of equality and going back to nature and, and all that. Sure. Which is a valid interpretation. But if you read more historical sources from the uh, Talmud Yerushalmi, from uh, Roman writings that about the, from Plavius, you know, uh, Josephus Plavius, you see that Shemitah was actually kind of a crisis. People were hungry. It sure. wasn't so fun. People moved out of the land of Israel to avoid Shemitah. Uh, actually, most of the material we have from the rabbis is not on how to keep Shemitah. It's what to do with those who try to bypass Shemitah and how to like... So, so pa pause for a second. It's very important what you're saying because it often irks me that we approach Shemitah and many other um, tremendous uh, legal halakhic questions as a problem to be solved. And maybe I'll come to my issues with that later. But what you're pointing out to me is that it's kind of always been that way, practically speaking, for an agrarian society to sort of let go of its means of production. Inevitably, it's a problem to be solved. It was actually a much more severe problem than our generation. I mean, they, sure. they could not import food in the masses and, and prices that we can import. I mean, no. they had to rely on local local agriculture. It's not utopian. What's the social vision? Just God's looking to make our lives difficult? So so, it for, so exactly. So at first I was perplexed. I mean, that's a question that ignited my interest in this topic and the whole book. I mean, why would our Torah, why would our tradition impose something which is not so fun? I mean... Yeah, Wait, you didn't, only... you didn't seriously ask why would our tradition no, propose no, no, something no. which is not so fun. I'm, he I'm hearing Jews out there in the distance rolling their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, some things are not so fun, okay? I get it. Kashrut might not be so fun. Shabbat sometimes may be boring. Uh, you know, other stuff can be not so fun. Davening is not always the funnest thing to do. But still, nothing comes anywhere, anywhere near a crisis like Shemitah. This mm. is an existential crisis. This is an economic crisis. People went hungry. It's not just some discomfort right crisis is very different thing. It, it's it's a, it's on a different scale and different level the answer one answer i would like to propose which is the, the really the axis of the book is that Schmitter was actually supposed to be this way it was supposed to be and still is supposed to be a pre-planned crisis interesting now why would you do why would you inject a pre-planned crisis into the system i mean isn't it better to live a life free of crisis well of course it is but that's, that's not realistic. Until Mashiach comes, until the end of time, crises are a part of life. And what Shemitah tells us, actually, actually, that's really in a nutshell, is that if you incorporate and integrate or inject a pre-planned crisis into the system, you get two benefits. First, you get the benefit of a crisis per se. I'll say more about that in a minute. Sure. Second, you get to alleviate some of the, of the frequency uh, and the harshness and severity of unplanned crises, which are going to happen anyway. Sure. Now, Disaster. The way, you know, just ask me about Shuba. Let, let's connect the, 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 the dots. 
So yes, this this is an area that has lives in a constant crisis. But well, it, it fluctuates. Sometimes right now it's uh, quiet. Uh, about a month ago it was not, not quiet. <laughs> uh, it depends on, on on the time of the depends on, on the season. But this let's say cycle of crisis has actually yielded a very strong community in this area, very strong social services, very innovative ways on how to deal with, with children with, with anxieties. And now we can take this knowledge and apply it to other places that not necessarily mm. deal with people with rockets. For example, in Ukraine, so we, the knowledge we have in, in dealing with crisis was very valuable for people who met such a crisis for the first time in their lives, the first time in the history. They, well, let's they just say it very bluntly. You have been under rocket fire for years. And communities that have not only survived but thrived have wisdom to offer the Ukrainians who are now living under rocket fire, God forbid, for months at this point, but it could go on. Exactly. Um, and let, let's look at a larger scale. The Israeli economic miracle, what we call the startup nation, uh, was born out of a crisis. It was, I mean, the, the cradle of, that, of the high-tech industry was actually the military. Absolutely. That's where the, uh, the high-tech industry started in, in the 1980s. And those crises forced us, actually, to come up with innovative technologies that then boomed into what we know today. And just to exemplify this with a story, a joke, actually, it's not, it's not a historical story. Sure. Um, there's a joke that says, you know, one day God sends a message uh, that nobody can deny. And he says, you know, no, guys, I've had enough. I know I promised not to bring another flood, but you've gone too far. I'm taking it back. In two weeks from now, I'm flooding the world and that's it. I'm done with humanity. So the Christians go to their churches and, and, and pray and, and try to convince him not to. And the Muslims go to their mosques and then Buddhists go to their temples. And then the Jews get it, get it together in Jerusalem and they say, okay, we have two weeks to figure out how to live underwater. Well, let's, <laughs> let, let's, get, let's get started. Oh, that is good. Yes. So, yes. so a, a, a crisis yields uh, uh, productivity and innovation. Uh, one of the best examples I, I like to use to, to exemplify this as I told you, I'm also a mountain biker instructor and racer. And, and one of the best ways, most effective ways to train for racing is what we call HIIT. It's high intensity interval training. So the way to train your body is to purposefully and in a planned manner, get it into a crisis, go to a higher heartbeat, higher intensity than you're used to. That's where you make progress. That's where the... That's where growth happens. Yeah, that, that's where... It, it changes the, the structure of your cells. It, ch- it changes the structure of your lungs. It, it, when you go beyond your comfort zone, and then you go back to rest, and that's how you make progress. So, so if I understand you correctly, the seven-year cycle of the sabbatical year, in a sense, um, shuts down the agricultural means of production so that society can grow through crisis. I might call it um, a, an evolutionary driver. Right? I'm thinking about the, either the Chinese symbol or the good old-fashioned uh, Homer Simpson line, crisis-tunity, right? That there's there's a, a tremendous opportunity which comes through crisis. I'm understanding you correctly there. And the second piece I, that, that you mentioned is that it, that in itself softens the impact of the inevitable crises that life sends us without sort of a pre-planned uh, cyclical approach. Exactly, because you're well-trained and you know what to do when a crisis hits. So when the real crisis hits, not the real, I mean, like the, the unplanned one, you, you better have the, as a the resiliency sure. to, to overcome it. So I actually want to ask you about a specific crisis because um, I had this experience. I've been here in the land of Israel now for um, 21 years. And I came actually right after a Shemitah cycle. And it was a fantastic, starry-eyed, you know, um, the new Ola, new immigrant very much in the um, paradise model that you mentioned at the beginning, very quickly confused and, and mystified. But over the past couple of Shemitah cycles, I saw a society, religious society, in which I'm embedded, uh, beginning to organize itself in amazing ways. Religious society was organizing itself in amazing ways to try to access different sort of um, means of production and things that Americans might call community-supported agriculture in linking the consumer and the producer during the seventh year, stuff that I was very excited about. Furthermore, I got to see, at least from afar, in the broader world, not just the exclusively religious consumer, that Shemitah was gaining traction in people's imagination, and it was starting to embody certain conceptions. And then, this past cycle, it was as if it all dissipated, with almost without a trace. And my feeling was, and I actually asked you this uh, when we were in South Africa, 
Um, my feeling was is that we'd just gone through a crisis of COVID and that basically nobody had it in them. Was that true? Is that really what happened? Am I just imagining it? Well, you know, as, as an historian, I think it's, it's it hasn't been enough time to really say what happened. So what, I, what I'm going to say now is very, you know, uh, cautious. But after all the reservations required. So, yes, first of all, there was a process that started about almost exactly 20 or 21 years ago in, in that Shemitah cycle of people like rediscovering Shemitah. Because what happened is that Shemitah, actually, after the Bakocha rebellion, 136 AD, you know, most Jews had to leave the country. Shemitah became irrelevant. It became maybe Shemitah Safim, which we can talk about in a minute. We will, but, yeah. But that, that was also not so relevant because of Prusbul. So it became, you know, one of those things that you can just, they're in the Torah, but it's not really relevant to, to anyone. When we came back to the land, Shemitah became all of a sudden like a like a problem. So that, that was a technical issue. Thing. Technical issue. And then about 15, 16 years ago, uh, Chazon and other organizations that, that were like heavily, heavily immersed in Jewish environmental thought started looking for Jewish resources, Jewish background, Jewish. So yes, yeah, so, so you have the, the Bereshit and you have that famous Midrash of uh, God telling man, you know, uh, you know, keep in mind not to ruin my wall because there's no one to fix it after you. But okay, it's not enough. I mean, like how, how many times can you How quote many times we can quote the same five sources? It's one of my <laughs> yeah, issues so, with, with Jewish environmentalism in general. We can talk about that sometime. Right. <laughs> so, and then Shemitah all of a sudden emerged as like this huge resource of wisdom about the environment, society, the economy, this like groundbreaking, out-of-the-box idea from millennia ago. And then books were started to be written, uh, source books were started to be uh, compiled, given out. Uh, Rav Kook was translated into English. Rav Kook wrote a very extensive book on Shemitah like 100 years ago. It was translated into English by Edith Sinclair. And then in the last Shemitah cycle, it was built, we started talking about this Shemitah year two years in advance, started planning, started like, okay, Let's do it not last minute like Israelis. Let's do it in the American way this time. Let's plan in advance. It's funny, by the way, people who don't live in Israel don't realize that despite the fact that we know it's coming, we're preparing for seven years, Shemitah takes everyone by surprise every time. Yeah, every like, time. What? It's, it's Shemitah's like, folks, come on. We've been counting. <laughs> yeah, we've been counting this for like thousands of years. But yes. <laughs> Nonetheless. Uh, kind of like Shabbat. And then really what happened on March 2020, like Adar Tafshin Pei, is that COVID hit like two and a half years ago. And, and then people started asking themselves, first of all, people didn't have the, the bandwidth to deal with anything except for yeah. surviving. One crisis at a time, please. <laughs> yeah, really, one crisis at a time. And also it sort of like started questioning the whole idea of like, you know, maybe Shemitah is not such a good idea. Like, do we really want like a full year that everybody off their jobs? And like, do we, and that, that's what sparked my thought about, about this book. Now, I think it's going to, to rebound. That's again, that's a projection into the future. Sure. I think Schmidt. I think Schmidt is a very strong idea, especially after COVID. It actually it's even stronger if you if you interpret it in this way as as a pre-planned crisis and not as a utopian year. I think that you know, God forbid, if there's be there will be another crisis, then I don't know what's going to happen. But if things evolve sort of like normally, I think the next Schmidt year we will see even more, you know, activities, books, booklets, podcasts, whatever uh, thought about it. And by the way, it's not only Shemitah. I mean, many Jewish ideas, ancient Jewish ideas, are having some gaining sort of traction. Yeah, gaining traction, which makes sense. You know, we had the first phase, like of first three generations built in of Israel. Now we have a state. Okay, what's next? What's the what vision do we for the future? Do with it. Well, we're going to get to that before that. we're done. Actually, I want to I want to speak about one specific that people are probably less familiar with. I think a lot of people, if they have knowledge of Shemitah, think of it um, because of the language of the sabbatical year as related to the land, which it certainly is. But there's a whole other side of Shemitah, which actually is coming rapidly upon us in its halachic legal manifestation. That's called Shemitat Kisafim. You know, for our listeners who aren't familiar, um, this is the um, releasing of debts. It is debt forgiveness, which um, uh, I think we'll, we'll come to eventually, is a, is a pressing issue in the world today, watching the American discourse around student loans, Right. Um, and the need to forgive that. Uh, we're seeing many issues around the world in terms of housing prices and the and predatory loans. America had a, an economic meltdown in 2008 over mortgage debt, right? Which, by the way, about the Schmitter year. We'll get to that. Right. Uh, and and uh, you know, domestic debt, be it credit card or otherwise, is a, is a corrosive element yeah. of, of uh, economies around the globe. So here we have a biblical idea 
that we're supposed to let go of our credit that we've given to other people once every seven years. First of all, can you tell us a little about the crisis or the opportunity which lies there? Yeah, so just to put it in context, Shemitah has actually seven components. So the Shabbat of the land is one of them, Shemitah Ksafim is another one, there's also Jubilee and Akel and other parts, if you want, we can get to them. But Shemitah is a broad issue, it's not just these two. So first of all, yes, uh, the crisis of debt is a, is a big one, evolving one, growing one, but it's not a new one. When I did my research, the most fascinating fact I found, one of the most fascinating facts I found, is that actually Shemitah Ksafim, or debt relief, or clean slates, how they're called, uh, was a very, very common practice in the ancient world. It yes. was not a Jewish invention. It, it no, actually kings preceded. used it as a tool to, you know, enhance their power or to give relief, etc. Yeah. Yeah, they did it. So in case in case some of our listeners are not familiar, I'll just give like the, the basic overview. So what would happen every seven to 10 years is that, you know, if I give you and a few other people a loan and some of you default, when you default, first you need to give me all your cattle as, as, a, as a, that's a, that's the recourse. If if that's not enough, I take your land, and if that's not enough, I take you and your family as slaves. Yeah. So what would happen after a few years is that a very small group of people at the top would own most of the land, most of the animals, most of the capital, most of the people, actually. Let's call them um, the one percent, shall we? It, 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 <laughs> it, it, it wasn't even a pyramid. Yeah. The pyramid has some, you know, uh, has some, some width to it. Yeah, some strut. It's With more like a, a like an upside plane. down. Champagne, champagne cap. So there's a, there's a small minority at the top and then a huge majority at the bottom with a few more people on the scale, but it, it was very polarized. Mm-hmm. Now, when rulers like Hammurabi, like uh, uh, Egan Dagan from Mesopotamia, all kinds of ancient rulers, when they proclaimed a clean slate, it wasn't because they believed in social justice or because they believed in equality or whatever. These are very modern ideas. Uh-huh. We, we need to be very careful of projecting modern ideas on the past. True. This wasn't the idea. The idea was that because there was the, the vast majority of their uh, population actually sank into death and slavery and had no hope, so when they needed to either conquer another country or defend themselves from another king, no one would come. Yeah, because back then they had there to was lose. No, <laughs> yeah, because you know people who have nothing to lose have no motivation to do anything. Like what? What are you going to do? Kill me? Okay, <laughs> if I go to the army, I'm going to die anyway. So I don't care. Uh, so they would proclaim a clean slate to actually reset the system, enable people some hope, and then they can recruit them to the army or to other public works like building the pyramids or whatever it is, or any or building the walls of the city or any other thing they would need. Thus proving, by the way, that hope is the ultimate social commodity. And if, right. and if you can provide it, then you, can, you have power. So that's what people in power did. So it was in cycles. So you, you lose hope over a cycle of years and then you get it again. And it was a very common practice. So what, what's the Jewish innovation here? Uh, there is a Jewish innovation, which is very, very important. A, it's, it's national clean slate for everybody. But the, the two other ingredients are the most important ones. The second one is that it's well known in advance. You know exactly when Shemitah Safim, the Hebrew monetary uh, Shemitah is going to happen. It's going to happen in about... Five days at yeah. sunset on Sunday. That's Erev Rosh Hashanah. At sunset, exactly, all the loans are remitted, and, and you can calculate this into the future. Thousand years from now, you can know exactly when it's going to happen. That's one thing. The other thing is that it's it was actually expropriated from the king, so it's no longer a decision of the king to do a clean slate. Usually, they will do it on their birthdays or uh, the anniversary of their uh, rulership. Crowning, like yeah. That. It was. It became a constitution, so it's the king has no say on when Shemitah Safim is going to happen and what are going to be the rules. This is all preset and predetermined for generations, and this is one key Jewish idea. For example, that's not the main issue of a conversation, but just to give an, an example, this whole idea of uh, everybody are equal below uh, in front of the law and everybody are below the law, like the law uh, stands above to us all. Uh, that's a predominantly Jewish idea because up until then, kings had different kings, nobles, uh, rich people had different legal systems than sure. the peasants and the commoners. So that, that's one key idea. But even deeper than that, and then we'll, we'll, we can talk about, okay, but why did we, did we cancel such a good, good idea? 
if I do plan on that, the fact that you make it into a regular mechanism actually broke the cyclical thinking of the ancient world. Because for, for the ancient kings, when they did a clean slate, uh, this wasn't about moving forward. This wasn't, again, we need to be careful of projecting progressive ideas on ancient cultures. Their idea was exactly the opposite. It was going back. It was resetting the table and going back to square one Mm-hmm. And then people accumulate it, and then we're going back to square one. In the Jewish sense, it's a, it's a progress. It's something different. Really? And where do you see the progressive element? Because I've often, even myself, characterized the sabbatical cycle and the jubilee as a returning to the point of origin. Where is the progress you feel that you see built in? So let, 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 me, let me first exemplify this with a, with a math uh, test, okay? Uh-oh. Not, okay. Not, not, too, not too difficult, don't worry. If I give you the following series of numbers, uh, two, four, six, eight, what would be the next three numbers in this uh, series? 10, 12, 14. Right, and I, and I like Leo Sushad, I'm going to be a mentalist and, and project that every all of our listeners would say the same uh, response, and it, sure. which is true, by the way. Two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, ad infinitum, and it can continue like this. And it's true, I'm not, I'm not tweaking you. But this this answer, even though it seems to seems to us like pure mathematics, it is actually contingent on the culture, because if you would ask this question in ancient Mesopotamia, Babylon, parts of Greece, some twenty five hundred, three thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, the answer would be two four six eight six four two, and then again and again and again in cycles. Now this is also a mathematically valid uh, answer. It's not right or wrong. It's about a paradigm. It's about a concept. Mm. Uh, when we broke away from the, uh, there's a book by Michael Hudson that explains this uh, very beautifully. Like he, he actually reviews all the clean slates in history, in ancient history. So, but if you take this this idea of actually expropriating the Shemitat Ksafim, the monetary relief from the hands of the kings, it's no longer related to his cycle, but it's now a cycle of its own, and you connect it to the, to the pre-planned crisis, and also to the basic Jewish idea of prophecy, that uh, Jewish prophets had a vision into the future. They had a vision for thousands of years. Uh, so this is the, these are the, the foundations of the idea of progress. Not going to politics between progressives and conservatives, not going to that. Mm-hmm. that. No, I understand. The meaning, one can picture the Shemitah as an endless cycle in the ancient world sense, or we can think of it as a spiral, which goes round and round, but continues but to move forward in, in a direction. And it's fascinating what you pointed out is that um, numbers, in your example, a sequence of numbers, appear objective, but the reality is the way in which we frame them is a product of our culture. And if I heard you correctly, it's really this sort of driving vision of Torah, whether it's embodied by the prophets or the commandments, that gives a progressive assumption, to use our modern modern terms, a progressive assumption to what would look like an unending cycle. Yeah, I heard you okay yeah, there? Yeah, but pretty much. I mean, now my, my PhD is about Progressivism and conservatism, so I won't go into too much into that. But Judaism has a, has a combination between the, the two. It, it's like yeah. a progressive culture with conservative uh, checks and balances, but that's a whole different uh, conversation if you want to have it in the future. But uh, I, I would love to have it in the future. Actually, right now I want to ask you a specific question, though, about the future, as long as you threw the F word out there, if you excuse my, yeah. <laughs> my bad humor. Um, the, uh, you know, there's, there's some value societies are really struggling around today. I've talked to a number of people, friends of mine in the States, both who who, who um, have been struggling with student loans, people who paid off student loans, um, you know, people who, who never had them. But what you hear when you get beyond the angry political rhetoric is there's a conflict of values. Some people see, you know, financial prudence as a value. Some people say it's an absolute value to pay off your debt. Some people, etc. What do you see to be the central value embodied by this clean slate, by this shmitat kesafim, the, the debt relief of the seventh year. And how, by the way, as a follow-up, would you see that as a platform for building our society going forward? Okay, so first of all, we just need to put it again in context, because in, in the ancient world, people didn't have the concept of investment. The concept that the loans they would take back then was for regular livelihood. That's why it doesn't make sense to charge interest because that money doesn't make new money. It, it's just a it's, a it's a bridge loan. It's just to bridge the gap. 
until yeah. your crop yield or, or whatever. We call a seed loan, literally. Yeah. Now, the concept of investment that, you know, I lend you money and you might build a business with that money, which makes profit and value and then enough value to pay me back my loan plus some interest and also puts you on a different economic level or position. Sure, you're giving me capital. Yeah, that idea, again, it's it's cultural. It's paradigmatic. It, 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 it uh, evolved in the 16th, 17th century, pretty much. So applying Shemitah Ksafim to our world as, as is, 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 is a problem because the, the context is different. We should also mention, for, for those who don't know, that Shemitah film was actually canceled like more than 2,000 years ago. There, there, there was a mechanism put in place called Prusbul. You sign a document, all the loans are transmitted to the court, and that's it. And so practically, there is no Shemitah film for a very long time in the Jewish culture. Specifically but, for the reason, just as long as you opened it up, that um, there was a recognition on behalf of Hill the Elder that the society in which he lived could not function with a simplistic approach. And, and he was afraid in particular that people would simply cease to loan, exactly. as the Torah warns. So, so the rich people will not give any more loans to the poor people. But nonetheless, do you see then that this is a, is this an anachronism? Or is there a value that can somehow be embodied in building a better future for our society? Yeah, so yeah, I definitely do. But I think that we need to be very careful when we do it. So one approach, which is a, a fundamentalist approach, which I am, I think we should be careful of, would say, okay, let's take past ideas and just try to copy-paste them into our society. Let's do clean slates. Let's do a sabbatical year for the entire market every seven years. And you know, just coerce our ideas on reality. But Judaism is not like that. Judaism evolves. Judaism, halacha, evolves. Halacha means, uh, sounds like the word halicha, to walk in Hebrew. Uh, so Jewish law walks and evolves and and changes over time and it's not because it's a uh, flexible or not serious it's because it's very resilient and and, uh, and and like you pointed out the world changes over time so uh, why would you think that the law wouldn't well some people think that we just need you know to live what our ancestors lived now what, what we should do i think and again that's only my opinion let's try and distill the core ideas of those mechanisms Let's go back in time, try to understand what was the core idea behind Shemitah, and then let's go back up in time and see how it can, how it can be applied as an idea to, to the modern economy. Um, so let, let, let's try and, and do this in our contemporary economy. So, first of all, just the two, the two, the two basic uh, core ideas, okay? Just to summarize what we talked about, one core idea is a pre-planned crisis as a mechanism for, I would say, stable growth, like less less destabilization, less uh, fluctuations, a more stable prog- progressive uh, path. That's one 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 side of it. The other side of Shmita Safim, and even more so the Yovel, is that we do not want a society in which uh, a random mistake uh, sends you on a life uh, on a lifelong uh, sl- uh, servitude. Right, a bad crop harvest or yeah, an accident. For some reason, or... crops didn't work this year. You can't pay, pay back the loan. You sink into debt. You become a slave. And that's it. That's the end of, the end of your life. So Shmitak Safin gives you those windows. And Yovel, which is the 50th year, Jubilee. actually releases Jubilee. Yeah. Jubilee releases all the slaves and returns all the lands to their original owners exactly because they had to give them away because they had too much debt. That's the, mm-hmm. the reasoning behind Yovel. Now, so these are the two basic ideas. Pre-planned crisis as a mechanism for growth and trying to avoid a random mistakes, sending people into a lifelong uh, servitude or, or derailing their lives entirely. Now, let's see how can this apply to one of the major crises uh, that we have in our economy, which is intensifying, well, maybe a challenge, not necessarily a crisis, uh, which is the volatile uh, job market. So if you take people, I'm, th- I'm 39, I think you're I'm about 48. 48. Anyway, we're the same generation. So I, Technically, I, I, that I'm Generation X. I'm the oldest millennial alive. I was born yeah. in 1982. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry, like, but uh, I'm, I'm going to deny that we're of the same generation. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. <laughs> Pro- approximate generations. Now, our parents' generation, in our parents' generation, people in their 60s and 70s and 80s now, it was very common to graduate from college as an accountant or whatever, get a job in accountant, in an accountant firm, 
and retire after 50 years I from the same career job. one uh, maybe two places sure it was very common it, many people we know that have retired lately the boomers that that was their life path in uh yeah. for the most part now if you talk to people you know my generation and younger uh, you don't need to talk you can just look at, at reality that's not going to happen uh my I mean, goodness I, i have three jobs right now <laughs> and how many jobs have you had over the last uh, oh like I get it who's counting anymore that's not just jobs in the same field no we have people moving from lawyers into high-tech from high-tech to education from education to sports from people make huge shifts in their lives it's very rare to find people in the same job if people like let's say like 20 20s or 30s they've kept the same job for the last five years it's it's very very increasingly rare, rare sure increasingly rare now even more than that, You know, I have five kids, ages one and a half to 14. You met two of them in South Africa. Very sweet. Yeah, the, the jobs they're going to work at have not been invented yet. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know how to prepare them to the future job market because the jobs and professions of the future have not even invented, are still in the making. For example, think about, you know, if you would have, you would have told someone 20 years ago that their job is going to be uh, a LinkedIn profiles editor. Or yeah, like what? I don't what? even understand the language. What are you talking about? And, you know, yeah. people make a fortune from editing LinkedIn profiles. It's, it's a profession. It's an actual yeah, yeah, job. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, now, on the one hand, that's great. You know, we get to change jobs. We get to change places. It's a global economy. We move from one place to another. Lots of creativity, lots of innovation, lots of freedom. It's fantastic. But what about all the people who are actually the majority who cannot adapt so quickly? Mm. who actually experienced those transitions as a crisis, who actually, many of them find themselves, you know, like thrown at the side of the world, derailed. In COVID, we saw it very... Oh, we saw it large quite numbers. sharply. Yeah. People in tourism, for example, they, they, their lives got derailed. Now it's coming back, but no, not everybody has been able to survive those two years uh, Certainly in, not. Like a, in, in a nice manner. So, so we, have a, we have a crisis here. Now, what if we take the, the core ideas of Shemitah and create some sort of a sabbatical year which can be applied not only to the, to the academia, but on a larger scale. Now, by the way, the sabbatical year in the academia, in the universities, was also obviously inspired by Shemitah. Sure. It was first initiated in 1880 by Charles Elliott, who was the president of Harvard. And because Harvard is a central university, it became prevalent and, and like spread out. But what he said, and the people after him said, was that we're doing this sabbatical. It's even called sabbatical. Yeah, it's, it's obvious that that's, that's where they took the idea from. We're taking this one year off every six years as a paid relief, paid leave, sorry, for, for the professors. But we're not doing this for the welfare of the professors. If they want to go on vacation, they have vacation days, they can go on vacation like any other employee. It is for the benefit of the institution. It is for, for the benefit of the, stu- of the students because we want our professors to take time to update their knowledge, to, be, to do research again, to visit another university. And we want to have them back as more professional, more up-to-date, more efficient professors. Now, what if we take this idea and apply it to more sectors in the market in, in a way that can look something like this? First of all, it doesn't have to be the same year for everybody. That would be fundamentalism. It doesn't have to be a full year every six years. It can be six months every five years. It depends on your cycle of life. But the idea will be that in some sort of an agreement, and in my, in my book, I have a very detailed proposal. I won't go into all the details, just giving you the, the headlines. In some sort of an agreement between you and the employer and the government, uh, you take a pre-planned crisis. You take a pre-planned sabbatical. Mm-hmm. The purpose of that sabbatical is not to go to Sinai and relax on the beach. Uh, it's actually to take a training, learn, learn a new skill, see what's going around in your field and looking for the next uh, thing, look at a different field. To invest in growth. Exactly, invest in growth, what we call lifelong learning, which is a nice uh, slogan, but nobody really does that. And then you make the transition, either, either you go back to your previous job, but you're much more productive and efficient, or you, make, you take this time to make the self-transition into your next phase in life. And the benefit, again, is not only for you, And for your family, that you get some more time with your family, maybe. It's also for society at large, because one of the biggest problems we have, especially in Israel, by the way, is the problem of productivity. Like, we're not really tapping into the full potential of, of all citizens. 
And if oh, that, ain't that the truth on every level? If, for many reasons. Now, so hang on. I'm, I'm just one, I, I want to pause there to make yeah. sure I heard you correctly. So, because this is an idea that I think that can that can be crystallized here, which is that I'm also I'm, I'm wary of your time here. I'm I'm always watching the clock. Um, that that essentially taking this these two fundamental principles, the idea that uh, having a pre pre planned crisis prepares us better for the vagaries of life and the difficulties and that the core value is that no one should get stuck in life or at the best we can we should build structures that allow people the space to grow and change rather than get plowed over you know by by the events okay. that happen to us and then to build and this is i think a key piece a social structure that exists almost above the law it's not a political decision it's not one that's subject to the powers that be but it's a foundation for a society which is able to then grow change and adapt. I heard you okay there? Yeah, that's the idea. Now, what's the problem with this idea? Give us one problem, then we're going to wrap it up because you told me you had a yeah. stop. Like, I'm watching the clock here. Who's going to pay for all this? Like, who's going to pay uh, for those? Uh, like, okay. Well, you know, you know, they the say, you know, they said that the difference between the gematria of, uh, of Ratsui and Matsui is Kesef. Kesef, you can actually yeah. look that up. By the way, it actually works. The, the, yeah, it the numeric difference between between what you want and what you got is money. Exactly. <laughs> so who's going to pay for it? Tell us quick before I ask my last question. So the government is not an option. The governments are second in their own debt. Yeah, is not right. an governments don't have money. People have money. Governments take right. it from them. Exactly. You can't take money from one pocket to another. Uh, so people have money. People have, have uh, savings. Now, let's, let's couple this with another crisis we have in our society. Uh, which is that we live too long. I mean, I think this is, is a joke. Uh, no, but I understand what you mean, yeah. People live into their 70s and 80s and 90s even very easily. We're just uh, saying goodbye to Queen Elizabeth uh, today. She lives for the age of 93, and that's not so unusual. I mean, that's that, it happens. It's happening more and more, for sure. It's happening more and more. Now, we still retire at the age of 67 or 65 just to live 30 years of boredom and, and, and trying to survive from our pension funds. And, and as, as you may know, there are more people in America that believe they're going to meet a UFO or an alien than people who believe they're going to get something from the social security uh, I system. I think I might actually be part of that uh, demographic. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But social security, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pyramid. It's, it's a Fonzie menace. You put yeah. money that goes into people who live right now. For it's sure. going to collapse. It, by the way, in America, it's going to collapse in 2034. In Israel, it's going to collapse in 2044. Can I, can I quote you on that? Those are like very specific numbers. No, these are numbers from their reports. I can send you the reports. Yeah, these are official reports. Social so, Security so then, then where is it to be paid from? Tell us bottom line. Okay. So what if we take our pension funds that we pay, that we save anyway, and sort of like uh, uh, break our retirement into pieces? So we use the funds we have in the pension fund, after a few years, of course, you can't do it on day one, to fund those six months or year of sabbatical. And then in order to compensate for the last years, we work a longer time after retirement, which makes now more sense because we haven't worked for 50 years in a row. We had those breaks in the middle. So now we can walk until the age of 70 in jobs that do not require physical strength. So it's a uh, modern it's a modern embodiment of the biblical structure of a socioeconomic structure that really reflects the realities of today. Like you say, we live longer, we work longer. But in, but embodies those very specific values that you see is rooted in uh, in Torah. Yeah, it's a powerful I think it's... thing. I, I, I apologize for bringing it to a quick close, but um, but uh, we're 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 right at the end of time here, and I cannot resist. I have one completely out of left field question to ask you, yeah. um, which is that I'm in the middle of a discussion about um, the electoral issues that we are facing in our fair country here. Yet another crisis. I'm not going to drag you into politics. Don't be nervous. Um, but as part of that, I'm I'm trying to get people like yourself, people who have vision of a, a better society. Um, a, and and I'm asking a very simple question: Who's your hero? that you see out there today? Not necessarily in politics, but tell us just who should we, we be looking to right now if we want to see someone who's embodying values, hope, vision. Can you name someone for us? Um, I actually don't like this question. I'll tell you why. And I'll give my answer. As, 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 <laughs> You're as, such as, a Jew. <laughs> you got to fight with the question before you can answer. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think we've spent too much time, and I have a whole series of books, you know, about the greatest figures in history, the greatest philosopher, the greatest this, the greatest that. A lot of that is, is just good PR. Those people just had good, good okay. PR. And that's why you remember those people. And yes, there are great people in our generation. Rabbi Zaks was one of them for sure. Rabbi Riskin is one of them. 
Uh, I can think of a few more names, but I think what I'm looking, the people I, I look up to is more groups of people, okay. movements of people, great communities of people. So give a us community one. That, a community that, that, that is able to embody in its life, you know, both Judaism and, and sincere social uh, fairness and a care for the environment. And these are the role models. And these can also, can also be scaled. Because let's say you have this genius and righteous person, this tzaddik, that's great, but those cannot be replicated. Okay. I mean, this you can't you can't you can't multiply them. They're one of a kind. So good. So where where are you looking to then? Who who should we look to? What community or group of people or movement that embodies some of that heroic idea? Oh, so I think some of the communities that we have now in Israel, uh, which I would consider uh, as like modern halutzim, modern pioneers. Who, yeah, like like pioneers. In general, I think pioneers are that's the kind of people I would look up to. People who mm. not martyrs, that's the difference. Not people who sacrifice themselves. No, no, it's a completely them. different thing. Pioneers are sort of like you no, know, they they combine their self-interest in a good way, like they want to live a decent life, with opportunity for society. So they they know how to how to identify, okay, like what's where where are they needed in society, and what 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 could be their uh, th- their social role in that? I, uh, I don't think we could do better than that in terms of the guidance I'm looking for. Is that if we're looking for heroes in the world, we need to look for the people who are asking the question, "What can I do for society?" Which will also serve me, like you pointed out, it's not a martyrdom, but that's really what allows us to grow, to face the type of crises that you identified as one of the underlying issues that sort of brought Shmita down into the world, and God willing to to bring us to a better future. Well, uh, Ravon Ariel Lavi, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to find your book or they want to hear more about uh, Hakel, your sort of Jewish intentional communities incubator, how can they reach you and where should they go? So I'm obviously on Facebook, on Twitter, our website, uh, we have the website for Hakel. You can go to chazon.org slash Hakel. That's H-A-K-H-E-L. The book is available on Amazon in English. Uh, it's available also in Hebrew. Seven Schmidt inspired social and economic ideas. No, it's it's the era of Google. You can just look it up. Just it Google it. Excellent. That is the perfect response. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts with me. I look forward to the ongoing conversation. And as long as I'm thanking people, I want to thank all the folks who give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, keep it free, widely available. I want to call on you to join them now. No better time than the present. It's the beginning of a new year. If you want to help make season six the best it can be, go to my website, jewishstory.co. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button that says, be a patron. You click on that to give a little bit of per-podcast support. Or you can write me, rothmikefoyer at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook. I will share with you details of how you can dedicate a show in the coming season. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. I want to thank the Pardes Institute. B-A-R-D-E-S.org.il. Uh, they're throwing the doors of the Big Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. <laughs>